this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we're joined by Regina King, the incredible actress who was in uh, most recently Seven Seconds on Netflix and so many other things, 227, Boondocks, a host of things. It was such a, a pleasure and honor to speak with her. And then we also have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Before we jump in, I'll just say that if you've ever heard that phrase, keep that same energy, there's no better time than now to apply that to your life. That it was seemingly easier to be involved, to be active right after the election. There's always a spike in the way people think about their involvement after huge national stories like the kids in cages, like the wall, like the end of DACA, like those things. But remember, there's stuff happening every day that you just haven't seen, that hasn't made it to CNN, isn't on, not a YouTube video, like isn't on Instagram yet, but still impacts people's lives. And you got to keep that same energy that you had when there was a national tragedy because the work is still important. And as long as the outcomes are still the way they are, the work will always be important. So don't let that wane just because a story isn't the top story trending online or on CNN or MSNBC. Like the work still matters and you'll be able to stop the work when the problems stop. And until then, keep that same energy. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. And this is DeRay at DeRay D E R A Y on Twitter. Y'all, can we talk about how broken my heart is? Because the queen of soul, the queen of our lifetimes, is no longer with us here on this earth. Like, I, I shed actual tears, and then I worked my entire way through her dis- discography, and which made me cry more. Yeah, rest in peace to Aretha. She is, uh, like you said, she's the queen, and, and she is unparalleled, and, and she's one of those artists who, for me, and I think for so many of us, she's tied to, to so many memories I have, and for me, so many memories of my childhood, and, you know, whether it's my dad washing the car, or whether it's my mom, uh, cooking in the kitchen or whether it's like you know her, her christmas album when we're opening presents from under the tree and just so many special moments of, of my own life are tied to her voice and um and she's sort of been the background music to to so many of my most positive experiences and and i'm gonna hold those with me forever so you know she she lived a full life she lived a robust life and she was a genius most most certainly it's been incredible to see the tremendous outpouring of love and support and remembrance and celebration of Aretha's legacy from you know, all across the spectrum, from folks who are artists and celebrities to politicians. We saw Barack and Michelle, folks nationally, internationally. Um, it really is a testament to the impact that she's had in so many people's lives, uh, in inspiration, uh, and I think you know, an icon and a legend that will be impossible to replace. And I think that, you know, it speaks volumes just, just to see that, that the impact that, that her career, that her legacy has had uh, over decades on so many people's lives. Uh, and, and that that is, is so clear to see, uh, in, in who we're, in who we're seeing sort of, uh, coming out in support, uh, and speaking about that impact today. You know what I find so amazing about Aretha is that she was so many things to so many people 
all embodied in one person. I mean, she was a figure of possibility for so many people growing up in cities like Detroit. Um, you know, a teenage mother twice over. A lot of people said that she wasn't going to be able to make it, and she just stands as an inspiration for so many. She was a powerful political figure. Um, you know, her singing at Barack Obama's inauguration, her singing at Dr. King's funeral, her uh, singing anthems like Respect, which moved people from feminism and in the Black Power movement um, and the work that she did around um, getting people like Angela Davis out of jail. But then I also think of her as a really powerful spiritual figure. And I still listen to her Amazing Grace Live album all the time and the way in which she was able to translate blues and gospel for a mainstream artist, or audience rather. And then on top of it, she was a whole musical genius. Like there were so many people who stopped singing songs that they wrote or that they were known for after Aretha sang them. Like Sarah Vaughn would not sing Skylark after Aretha sang it. Uh, Otis Redding said Respect was her song after she sang it. You know, I mean, there were just, it, it, her Beatles covers were unlike any others. I still prefer Aretha's uh, Eleanor Rigby over, over the Beatles, even though it's fantastic. I mean, she just made so much her own and was a musical genius in ways that people don't even recognize because she feels so familiar to all of us. So it's just amazing to think about someone who was a musical genius, a political force, an inspiration, and then on top of all of that, still felt like your favorite auntie who came over with her pocketbook and would not <laughs> sit it down anywhere. Um, it's just a, an, an incredible person. And the thing I reflected on the most about Aretha and and I appreciate your everybody's commentary and the commentary online. I just I learned so much was just how much music was a part of who she was, not just what she did. Is I don't know if you saw online, but her granddaughter actually posted a video of her, her at home playing the piano and singing not too long ago, like the video was recorded not too long ago. And you just see the same woman and the same young woman that we saw videos of 50 years ago, like jamming and like she's sitting there singing. And you're just like, this is actually just who you were. Like, you lived the music. And it was beautiful to just remember that about her. The second is, I read a really good article that NPR put out about her relationship with gospel music. And it talked about the history behind her relationship with Bridge Over Troubled Water and uh, Mary Don't You Weep. And it's funny, I never heard uh, Mary Don't You Weep sung by anybody but Take Six. And it was just such a beautiful, seeing her sing them both was just like beautiful. I read up on her relationship with gospel music. You just saw like her deep, her legacy went and just how much she shaped community with music. And, and like the larger point that I got from the tributes to her online was about like what it means to use your gift to create space for people and like to allow people to like feel themselves and see themselves better. And Aretha did that to create a model for the best of us. And like that was really beautiful. I'm hopeful to see the tributes uh, that people will will do in the coming days, in the coming weeks, uh, to do justice to what it means that a legendary person um, has passed in hoping to see new legends like honor her music in ways that she deserves. So live on forever, Aretha. So for my news this week, uh, Prison Policy Institute uh, came out with a new report that provided what's really the first estimate of homelessness among the 5 million formerly incarcerated people living in the United States, and it found that uh, formerly incarcerated folks are 10 times more likely 
to be homeless than the general public. And what they found was that the rates of homelessness are especially high among uh, three specific demographics of people. And so that's people who have been incarcerated more than once. That's people who've recently been released from prison. And it's also people of color and women. Uh, and so to the, to the first point, people who've been in prison just once experience homelessness at a rate of nearly seven times higher than the general public, but people who've been experienced more than once have rates that are up to 13 times higher than the general public. So another way of thinking about that is that uh, people who have been incarcerated multiple times are twice as likely to be homeless as those who are returning from their first term of prison. So the more time you spend in prison, the more times you go back to prison, the more likely you are to find yourself homeless. And, and that's exacerbated by the fact that homelessness in and of itself has become a, like a, a deeply criminalized thing and that law enforcement agencies are aggressively enforcing, um, you know, offenses and arresting folks for, for things like sleeping in public spaces or panhandling or, or even public urination and these things that are, are really reflective of uh, housing insecurity more than they are criminality. And, and I think that those things exacerbate the likelihood of someone ending up back in prison in the first place. And, and that's what really makes prison a, a revolving door. Additionally, they found that formerly incarcerated black men have higher rates of unsheltered homelessness than their white or Hispanic counterparts. And, uh, and, and really importantly, they found that black women experience the highest rate of sheltered homelessness at nearly four times the rate of white men and twice as high as the rate of black men. And so the difference between sheltered homelessness and unsheltered homelessness is that unsheltered means you don't have a physical place to to stay or to sleep sheltered homelessness refers to those who are held in a shelter and so it, I, I won't go too much more in detail because the the report is pretty extensive but the conclusion of this is that homelessness is is really a, a problem that can be fixed this is an inevitability and, and states can and should develop more efficient sort of interagency systems to to help formerly incarcerated folks find homes so that they don't get caught in the revolving door of, of incarceration you know, as a woman, um, I find this both deeply informative and deeply disturbing. I'm glad to see that the report doesn't just disaggregate the data by gender or race, but it also pays attention to the intersections of gender and race. Um, and and we find some of the outcomes at that intersection that you just described, Clint, to be deeply disturbing. But especially when I think about the fact that 86% of incarcerated women have experienced some form of sexual violence violence and or intimate partner violence, and then recognize the fact that all women are more likely to be homeless, either sheltered or unsheltered, than men after they uh, come back from being incarcerated. I'm simply just worried about all of the ways in which that invites the cycle to continue. Uh, we know that if you are housing insecure, that you are um, certainly more at risk of enduring violence, enduring uh, dangerous circumstances over and over and over again. And if these are dangerous circumstances that are already contributed to your pathway into the criminal justice system in the first place, then how are people ever supposed to interrupt this cycle in their own lives? And then when you think about the children that are often being left to women to raise in these insecure circumstances, um, that cycle not only continues in a single generation, but it continues among multiple generations. Uh, and this is the cycle of generational poverty. This is the cycle of generational oppression. This is why it is not simply as easy as pulling yourself up by your bootstraps 
um, making sure that you graduate from high school or college because the amount of trauma that is occurring in generation after generation and the amount of difficulty and challenge that these generations are having in accessing the kind of support and services that they need are wrapped up in exactly what this kind of report talks about. Thanks for bringing this uh, to the conversation, Clint, because I think it is emblematic of something that is often underappreciated in our conversations about criminal justice reform and the criminal justice system. And oftentimes when we talk about the criminal justice system, whether it's on the policing side of things or incarceration and you know what happens when folks are confined, what gets lost in that is that the criminal justice system is has much further reach uh, than what happens when you first interact with it, what happens when you're confined, uh, but also extends to the lifetime of folks who uh, leave prisons, folks who may not have ever entered a prison but have a felony conviction that they weren't incarcerated for but uh, are still you know, stigmatized, prevented from accessing housing, prevented from voting for the rest of their lives in states like Florida, uh, prevented from uh, all of these other, participating in all of these other aspects of society, uh, such that it casts this wide net over entire communities. And I think the scale of that um, is rarely sort of talked about, uh, is rarely sort of quantified or uh, fully appreciated in, in, in the conversation, you know, to give you a sense, we've talked about Florida, you know, about 40% of all black men in Florida have a felony conviction. And that means all of those barriers impact almost half of the black male population. And Brittany, as you talked about, uh, it's important to pay attention to not only gender, but also the intersection of race and gender, uh, and how the criminal justice system impacts folks differentially, um, impacts black women in a particular and severe way um, that's different than how it impacts black men or that it impacts other populations. Um, and when you think about, you know, you, you have communities where you know, half of the men are, uh, you know, essentially cut off from economic opportunities, cut off from housing opportunities, cut off from civic opportunities, the opportunity to participate in democracy. Um, and then you have families, their, their communities, um, their children. You, it impacts every single person in many communities. Um, and the weight of that, the economic weight of that, the, uh, the political consequences of that are enormous, right? And they extend far for, further than uh, if we're just talking about, you know, what happens when folks enter the criminal justice system and what happens when they're confined, but we leave out uh, all of the other people who are impacted and what happens even when those people uh, return back from incarceration. And I think homelessness is one of those most severe manifestations of that broader phenomena and why we need to be working proactively, constantly uh, to, to challenge the system in its entirety, uh, to uproot the ways in which it is impacting you know, large swaths of the population and fundamentally transform uh, this from being a system that essentially punishes people for life um, in so many ways to a system that rehabilitates folks, that actually uh, meets folks' needs, and that actually uh, keeps folks safe. Clay, I'm happy you brought this up because I just like didn't, you know, I feel like I, I read a lot about homelessness, have talked a lot about homelessness, have organized uh, or worked with organizers on homelessness, and like it's a reminder that there's always stuff for us to learn. Two things really stuck out to me. One is around uh, the study talked about men had higher rates of marginal housing than women, resulting in high rates of housing insecurity. And I hadn't thought about the concept of marginal housing. Like, what does it mean to go in and out of housing 
what does it mean to really live on the margins of housing in a certain way? And like, what, what does that look like? The second though, and you know, we always talk about like, what are the structural barriers? Like what structurally leads to outcomes or prevents the outcomes that we want? And what I hadn't even thought about is housing application requirements that require things like professional references. And like, if you think about it, yeah, you've been incarcerated for 10 years, you go to apply for an apartment and you need a professional reference. It's like, you actually, like, what would that professional reference look like? And like, I never thought about how those things are seemingly innocuous, but actually serve to prevent uh, and function a host of people from participating in a part of civic life or part of social life or part of community. And I say that because we're always trying to tease back the like, how do we get here? What does it look like? And like, I just never thought about uh, professional references for a housing application. Like it just was, I never thought about that. So Clint, thanks for bringing that up. So my piece of news is an article called Bad Chicago Cops Spread Their Misconduct Like a Disease. And this article actually relies on an analysis and, and data that was collected by the Invisible Institute. Uh, which is an organization that in 2009 sued the Chicago Police Department to get access to all of their civilian complaints data, their use of force data. So this this huge uh, amount, thousands and thousands of files on a department with 30,000, uh, covering 30,000 officers and 23,000 complaints between 2000 and 2018. They got access to all of this data, which is, is more data than pretty much any other police department in the country we actually have on Chicago Police Department because in part of this work. Um, so we got this civilian complaints data, uh, they got the uh, use of force data, and then what's interesting about this is because the data is available now, they were able to do an analysis to predict which officers are more likely to be involved in misconduct. And so when we talk about predictions, often it's in this uh, conversation about predictive policing, and that is the use of often crime data uh, to predict, that police departments use to predict uh, where to deploy officers, uh, or even, you know, you see prediction being used uh, in the context of risk assessments and other things we've talked about in the past, which can be problematic in part because crime data is not unbiased. Um, but this really flips it on its head because they're actually using the police data uh, on, you know, civilian complaints against officers and use of force to predict misconduct and police violence. And so what they find is really incredible. So they find that you know, of these 30,000 officers that they've been able to obtain data on, in looking and conducting a social network analysis of this data, they were able to identify a smaller group of officers, about 1,300 of that broader 30,000, that were the most likely to be involved in misconduct. Uh, and what was interesting about this is that they all were connected to one another. So they would appear on complaints to, uh, together as, as both being involved in the same incident, the same use of force incident. Uh, and in diving deeper into the data, they were able to track the spread, almost like a disease, of police misconduct as officers were uh, teaching newer officers, younger officers, sort of the ways of how they do policing, uh, which in this context is incredibly violent. And so what, what they were able to do in, in looking at 12,000 uh, officers with low complaint rates before 2008, uh, the researcher Rob Arthur, who, who did this analysis, split those 12,000 officers into two different groups. One group were the ones who had actually been listed on a complaint with an officer who was part of that 1,300 most likely to commit misconduct officers. And the other were officers uh, that weren't linked to that group. 
And among the officers that were linked to that group, over the next 10 years, from 2008 through uh, 2018, those officers linked to that group were nine times more likely uh, to have a civilian complaint against them. They were also four times more likely to use force and five times more likely uh, to shoot people. So they were able to predict, by being connected to this sort of core group of uh, officers, these 1,300 officers, uh, you were significantly more likely uh, as another officer to be involved in use of force, misconduct, uh, civil suits against you, uh, misconduct suits, uh, and all of these other things. Uh, so you know, I bring this to the conversation because I think, one, this illustrates the ways in which uh, better data being made available on policing allows us to conduct more sophisticated analyses. Uh, and we're seeing the Invisible Institute conduct analysis that is at the leading edge of the field to be able to identify and predict uh, future misconduct at the individual sort of officer level. And what's also interesting about this, when you look at the Invisible Institute's data, uh, almost none of these officers are being fired or are being uh, disciplined for this misconduct. So they're this group of officers that continuously uh, commits misconduct at higher rates, that is sort of spreading that disease throughout the department, uh, infecting other officers, newer officers uh, that have connections to them that are on the same you know, assignments uh, or in the same division. Uh, and yet that continues to be allowed to happen these officers continue to be on the force. There's no systemic accountability in place in order to actually begin to cure that disease. You know, I'm reminded of the fact that often people want to boil police violence down to a single bad actor. And they say, well, one bad apple doesn't spoil the entire bunch. And this data shows us that actually not only can one bad apple spoil the entire bunch, but it is a reminder that so often the basket itself is rotten because it is rooted in um, the, the perpetuation of systemic oppression, bias, and racism. Uh, and I think this data is really important, especially given that it's coming out of Chicago, especially though we continue to see high incidences of police violence. There was a report um, recently where the Chicago police said that a young man uh, died of a self-inflicted wound to the back of the head. And his family, obviously, um, is coming up against that report. They're, they are submitting video um, after, the, after the incident um, that has been all over social media. But we continue to see over and over again Chicago Police Department in particular, be particularly vicious uh, to its citizens and to its citizens of color in particular. Uh, and so it is critically important to constantly remind people that it is a myth that this is just about a single bad person who once upon a time made a bad judgment call. This is about people who develop habits, share those habits with other people, an entire system that shields folks from the, the consequences of those habits and actually promotes those habits as good policing. And building on that point, Britt, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this article was it talked about how, you know, we've we've invested so much both rhetoric and resources into police training and 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 to be clear, like police training is incredibly important and we should invest in it. And and also to be clear, police training in and of itself will not fix all of our problems. But 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 it's interesting because so much of the conversation in a sort of um you know, over the last four or five years or so has been like, how do we make police training better to reduce biases, to reduce use of force, all of these things. And one of the police officers that they were talking to talked about how like on the first day, every cop hears some variation of forget everything you learned in the academy, we'll show you how to do it. And 
and and and to think about like that sort of mentality being pervasive in uh in police academy in, in police departments throughout the country and to think that like there is a there is a culture in which the veteran cops take the new cops and say like actually everything the the millions of dollars spent in training you in all of these different ways um to de-escalate or training you in all of these different ways to, to reduce your biases like forget all of that stuff we'll show you how it's done and they go on to talk about uh, Bob Very, who's a retired police chief uh, and current internal affairs investigator in New Jersey, has this quote where he says, uh, officers start out with minor things, forgetting their tie clip, and then that becomes forgetting shining their shoes, and then they get away with one punch during an arrest, and it just goes on from there. And and so, you know, this is the perspective of one retired police chief, but I think it it is illuminative of the fact that if you are part of a culture in which you can consistently get away with bad behavior, it is not unlikely that that bad behavior, especially as this data shows when you are uh, proximate to others who are engaging in bad behavior, um, that it will continue to exacerbate itself and it will continue to grow. And, um, you know, if you realize that you can get away with certain things without getting caught, then um, that creates a really uh, destructive culture for, for the community that you're serving. Sam, you know, we talk about the police a lot, and I know there are some people who are like, why they always talk about the police? You know, we get it, da da da. I think people don't realize just the, the magnitude of impact. So you think about the one person who was a victim of police violence that resulted in death, like the one person got killed, or you think about the 1,300, 1,400 people killed a year. And then you multiply that by all of their parents, brothers, sisters, neighbors, friends. There's actually a lot of people impacted. So like, just because you don't have proximity to it doesn't mean that people you love and care about don't have proximity. Like that is, I just am always reminded of the magnitude of people impacted by uh, these things, especially police violence. And the second thing is that uh, we have to stop framing any call for accountability as like a radical ask. We can't even fathom scenarios where a teacher would be accused of something grave 10 times and there'd be no repercussion. We can't imagine a situation where uh, whole sets of doctors across hospitals would just do things that resulted in death and there were no lawsuits or there weren't complaints filed and people took them seriously. Like that just, those, that just doesn't exist in the public sector and it barely exists in parts of the private sector. That basic accountability is seen as like a basic part of the profession but it's with the police that like things are secret or you just assume that they can do whatever they want in the name of public safety and we should never sacrifice our own safety in the name of public safety and I think that's what happens here so when you talk about this study and Sam you're right that the data is now newly released or like Rob Arthur was able to get this data to do an analysis is that I'm sure that if we had more data, we'd be able to find so many other things that actually cue us up to think about like what to do about it. So we talk about the problem. We know that some of the solutions are basic, is that there should be early warning systems, that we should there should be accountability for people who, who engage in misconduct, for officers who engage in misconduct. We should help citizens understand what the accountability looks like. There's no way to build trust if you don't see the follow through. So it's one one thing for me to complain. It's another thing for me to know it was taken seriously. If I don't know it was taken seriously, then I'm no more inclined to trust the system than before. Like these are basic things that we figured out in other places. Uh, and we just need to use the data to help us apply the lessons in this case. 
Speaking of accountability, let's talk about Georgia. We know that Stacey Abrams stands to make history if she is indeed elected in the general election as the next governor of the state. Um, And already we see the GOP and other forces trying to make sure that people of color and black people specifically are disenfranchised from their right to vote in Georgia. So election officials in a rural southwest county in Georgia are actually planning to close a number of polling places ahead of November. In Randolph County, there is a proposed change uh, to close half a dozen polling locations. The reason is because they're supposedly not meeting ADA standards. The Americans with Disability Act was, of course, created to ensure that public places are actually fully accessible to people with physical disabilities. However, this is not as cut and dry as making sure that people have access. Here's why. A lot of people in Randolph County are saying, number one, that those polling locations have not been ADA accessible or, and have not met ADA standards for a number of years. And it's only now that people are actually trying to go and close them. Number two, Randolph County is more than 60% black and 30% of those residents actually live in poverty. This means that closing those particular polling places will set up a number of people, most of them black, to have to walk over three hours to one of the two remaining polling locations that will still be open in Randolph County because there's no public transportation in that area. The ACLU also noted that um, one of the polling places that officials want to close is 97% black. So it's pretty clear what's happening here. And the ACLU has pledged to uh, sue this county and the county officials should they actually decide to move forward with this plan. Here's why this is critically important. Just like when we were talking about the straw ban, we have to be clear that we do not pit people's identities against one another and that we do not pit important issues against one another. It's not the environment or people with disabilities. It's the environment and people with disabilities, which is why people from the disabled community have proposed solutions around uh, the, the amount of plastic straws that are in use that are both good for disabled people and good for the environment. Just like here, people from the community who are both temporarily able-bodied and disabled are saying, if a, pl- if a polling place is not ADA compliant, then instead of closing it, you should make it ADA compliant and you should stop timing these things such that you can argue it's too late and there's not enough time. At the end of the day, you are pitting disability against race and there are plenty of people of color who themselves are disabled who are going to be double losers in this thing. This is a clear violation um, and we know exactly what the target is here. This is Uh, in order to disenfranchise votes and to suppress votes in a place where they are desperately needed for candidates like Stacey Abrams and others. And I'm ashamed to see what's happening here, and yet it's happening all over the country. I'm thankful for people who have been making sure that this story has not gotten lost in in the shuffle of things, and I'm thankful especially to the residents in Randolph County who have been making their voices heard as this as this plan comes to a vote. And just so folks remember, uh, Georgia was one of the nine states that had to seek approval from the federal government before making changes to its election practices, according to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, But it was in 2013, as uh, the Supreme Court 
sort of infamously did, they nullified that requirement, which essentially ruled that the formula used to determine which states had to get approval was unconstitutional. And, and Chief Justice John Roberts famously authored the majority opinion where he pointed to the sort of progress that had been made in getting rid of racial discrimination to justify the, the formula being struck down. And, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, OG Ruth out here had, had what I think one of the best lines in a dissent um, in sort of capturing the, the absurdity of the chief justice's claim and, and talked about how that reasoning was akin to, quote, throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are no longer getting wet. And and that that short sentence, I think, just, again, synthesizes and embodies the, the absurd rationale that uh, that the conservative court has used over and over again to to create uh, precedents and 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 sort of strip and strip other precedents that um, are are clearly committed and, and often are things that are working in order to create a more equitable world um, in light of of a deeply inequitable history that we have in this country. So, like, just for some context of what's happening in Georgia, uh, Georgia is one of thirty six states. So the majority of states uh, that will have gubernatorial elections this November. And Clint, as you mentioned, uh, the governor has uh, a tremendous power uh, over a whole range of issues, uh, including gerrymandering, including uh, ma- being a check on a Republican agenda writ large. So in many states, they have, still have Republican-controlled legislatures, uh, and those legislatures wouldn't be able to be passing uh, all of these voter suppression measures and voter ID laws uh, if a, rep- a Democratic governor was there to veto those bills. Uh, and as the first black woman governor uh, in the country, uh, if Stacey Abrams is elected, uh, that would be an incredible uh, historic moment uh, and a moment where we could begin to start to see a, a new sort of base and a new electorate uh, beginning to take control in Georgia because it is a lean red state, but every single election it gets bluer and bluer. Uh, and you know, if folks of color, if, if black folks uh, turn out, if they are not suppressed from turning out if these polling places, as the Republicans are trying to close them and suppress the vote, if we're able to organize uh, and make sure that people are able to have transportation to get where they need to go. Um, And if national organizers and and the Democratic Party uh, are able to invest uh, significant resources in local organizers on the ground in Georgia, doing the door knocking, doing uh, the get out the vote work, people of color-led organizations, um, that's how we can really win in Georgia uh, and begin to pull the tide, uh, to stem the tide of voter suppression that we've seen since the Supreme Court uh, invalidated part of the Voting Rights Act. And Brady, I know you talked about some of the stats, but 20% of the people who live in the impacted county uh, have no access to a car, so they have to walk to a polling place in only one of two polling places. The other thing is that the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, has been pushing for the consolidation of polling places uh, in an effort to potentially save money is what he's saying. But we hold elections so infrequently, like they're not like every month things, that there's no reason why we shouldn't have a set of common sense things around elections. It should be same day voter registration. We should have a gazillion places be polling places. Like who cares if there are a lot of polling places? It's only, it's like a one day event anyway. And we should figure out how to make sure that these changes to polling places aren't even allowed so close to election. So like if you want to offer a change and you should have to do it six months in advance, a year in advance, and like even the boards that have the power to do this shouldn't be able to do it like so close to election day. And the last thing is that people 
I think now are hip to what it means to run and be a part of, like formally a part of electoral politics. But you think about the people on something as simple as like the polling board or the board that decides where the polling stations are. It's something that people don't even think about and it doesn't really matter to your life until something like this comes up. So if you want to get involved, like you don't have to run for mayor or city council. You could be the clerk of the court. You could be on the Democratic committee. You could be on the polling board and actually exert a positive level of influence in your community. I need, I, this is such a great reminder of how uh, being a part of those bodies actually really does matter. And my news this week is about asbestos. We often talk about news that doesn't make the the mainstream. And uh, the thing about asbestos, I, I was going through the news a week ago, and I came across this note that people were saying that the Trump administration is going to sort of bring back asbestos. And I wanted to see what that meant and was that true. And what I found out is that that is not necessarily true, is that in 1989, the EPA tried to ban asbestos rate under a law uh, called the Toxic Substances Control Act, but it was overturned by the Court of Appeals, and the agency, the EPA, succeeded in halting only six then-obsolete uses of asbestos, including uh, some corrugated paper and flooring felt. Now, the Obama administration had done some work to try and uh, close some loopholes around asbestos. What I didn't know until I did research for this is that asbestos is technically legal, like in a lot of places around the country. But one of the reasons why people don't use asbestos is because the relationship, the documented relationship between cancer and asbestos is actually so strong that it's essentially a legal liability at this point that you'll just be sued by people for using asbestos. But what did happen is that there is now a plan to make the Toxic Substances Control Act stronger, and the Obama administration had led that, uh, so that we could actually get to a place where asbestos was banned. Um, But the law was deemed too weak before. What the Trump administration did do is that the EPA announced that they would no longer investigate indirect exposure to a set of chemicals, including asbestos, in air or water. So that means two big categories. One, asbestos that ends in landfills would no longer be included in the agency's risk assessments. And legacy uses, like asbestos in older buildings or asbestos materials no longer intended for manufacture. And it seems like a small thing, but we know that most of these issues of Uh, environmental justice, like relid, asbestos, these sort of things fall into uh, communities uh, of color where poor people are. And it was just a reminder how like these seemingly small rule changes can actually have a big consequence that like, if there are places where landfills are full of asbestos, like that should be included in a risk assessment. That seems sort of like a basic thing. This isn't really controversial. It's sort of like, where did this come from? Because the link between asbestos and Cancer so clear. What I also didn't know, though, is that Trump believes that the end of asbestos is actually a part of a conspiracy. And I'll tell you, all the people who, um, all the people who thought that the president actually doesn't impact their lives, like this is a great example. Like we don't think asbestos is going to make a big comeback, but Trump wrote in the Art of the Comeback. Um, he wrote, I believe that the movement against asbestos was led by the mob because it was often mob-related companies that would do the asbestos removal. Great pressure was put on politicians, and as usual, the politicians relented. And it's one of those things you're like, whew, the, what this man thinks actually has a consequence far greater than what you see on the news. And this, I just wanted to bring this here because I didn't know I learned something more about asbestos than I knew before, and I had no clue that Trump had taken such a wild position in the book on asbestos. So this article was really illuminating for me because 
my really only memory of of asbestos is the sort of like those commercials where I, I can't even remember what the commercials are saying, but I feel like they're in for so much of my life, there's always been a commercial that said like, if you have mesothelioma or been exposed to mesothelioma or asbestos, you might be, you know, uh, have the right to sue someone and get money. And, and it's the, just the words mesothelioma and, and asbestos are, are things that are exist in the sort of background of my memory from, from the sort of constant lawsuit commercials that would, would play on television. And I think so many folks have seen those, but, uh, but it, it is obviously an incredibly serious thing. And, and it is, this was an interesting history to, to get on how the sort of regulations around asbestos have, have come to be. And I also think to the, to the initial point you made, it's a reminder that there, the initial reporting, reporting, I think you said was that Trump has made asbestos legal or something like that. And that was coming from, from people who, who otherwise are really reliable sources. And it's just a reminder that we're in a very new moment and a new age in which uh, we we have to be thoughtful about like what reporting and what news is is real and, and that we have to sort of double check um, so many of the things that we might, you know, see flying around on, on, on Twitter or on Facebook. But, uh, but there's often, as this, you know, as this is illuminated, often something, uh, another story beneath the surface. So this was a far more nuanced take and I appreciate it. And, you know, I just want to say that the folks who are career federal employees, I know have had a really tough way to go. A lot of them don't actually agree with the politics or policies of this administration. Um, they were not appointed by this administration, right? They are career employees. They last through multiple administrations. And yet a lot of them are doing the really brave thing and pushing back from both the inside and the outside to try to make sure that what's right is actually being done. And if these scientists and others inside the EPA had not raised hell, then this story probably would, ne would have never been reported. And these new guidelines uh, would have moved forward with us being none the wiser and there being no pushback to it. Um, and so I, I, I'm very sure that uh, career employees of these various agencies are probably having a hard time explaining why they stayed and why they didn't quit to their loved ones, their friends, their family. Um, and yet I recognize that a lot of you are choosing to do the hard work of pushing from the inside and it's not always easy. Um, and sometimes it might not even feel worth it. Uh, but especially in cases like this, I'm thankful that folks who are willing to tell the truth are there. Just to reiterate, uh, you know, this, the importance, as you said, Brittany, uh, of folks working on the inside, career, you know, federal employees who are able to use their position institutionally to actually slow and put a check on what this administration is doing, often behind the scenes and, in, and at considerable risk uh, to their own livelihood. And, and as we've seen with this administration, their willingness to, Trump's willingness to just uh, put people on blast and tweet all kinds of lies about people and try to ruin their entire career. Um, but it is people who, you know, for many folks who chose to stay, you know, there are people who, who probably chose to stay and have been complicit in enacting this administration's agenda. Um, but, you know, s certainly for people who, who are still uh, in those positions and are doing everything they can to use that position uh, to actually uh, protect people, to actually slow down 
uh, or halt or obstruct uh, some of the harmful things this administration is doing. Like that is that is a necessary part. That sort of inside strategy uh, is a necessary part of the work as well. And so um, it, I'm hopeful that just like we see here, there will be more uh, resistance to to what's happening in this administration, and uh, that we won't see as as many attempts. Although I'm skeptical about this, as many attempts from this administration to try to purge, uh, continue to purge people from. Uh, from these positions and replace them with, uh, you know, Trump uh, loyalists. So, so those are things to be looking out for. But, but hats off to to people who are actually using their position uh, to obstruct this administration and protect people who need to be protected. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More politics. The people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash people. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month and on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Regina, it is great to have you here today, and uh, thanks so much for joining us on Pate of the People. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you about the project that I first heard your voice on, which was The Boondocks. Mm. Now, was that as as cool to be a part of as it was to experience on our end? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I originally was only playing the voice of Riley, and they had a hard time casting Huey. And because I had done all of the um, auditions with the potential Hueys, I kind of got an idea for what it was Aaron was looking for. And I asked, could I audition for Huey? And the rest is history. (laughs) Now, I want to start there because when I think about the arc of your career, everything from, what, 227, all these shows, Boondocks and Beyond, you've played these roles that have helped us understand the complexity of blackness, the beauty of blackness, helping us sort of carve out contours that we didn't otherwise see represented in film and TV. How have you, what's been your decision-making process to decide on the projects that you choose? You know, just first and foremost, just wanting to do projects that are interesting to me. So although I am an artist, I look at myself as an audience member as well. So I know that if it's interesting to me, it's uh, more chances of success because I think just as a human being, you're when you're passionate about something, you put more into it. So that's probably ultimately what I'm where I am when I'm making decisions. But I, I do like subject matter that makes you uncomfortable. Um, I feel like when you are able to be a part of storytelling that makes uh that 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 starts conversations to happen across the lines those are the projects that help advance shifts in thinking and i think with um american crime and with 7 seconds they 
present a life that maybe one person may not be aware of just because it's not their experience. And, you know, usually we surround ourselves with what's familiar or like-minded people. Um, And it's usually through TV, music, film, where people are exposed to different experiences. And when you get to see other perspectives, I think that's when you become more open to considering someone else's position on something, whatever that something may be. Now, watch Seven Seconds, love Seven Seconds. And I'm always nervous about shows about police violence now because it's very hit or miss, but Seven Seconds sort of nailed it. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was using the phrase police violence, which is used in like episodes one or two. And I remember because, uh, you know, heretofore before the protests began, people said police brutality and brutality makes it seem really episodic, but violence makes it seen as consistent as it actually is in, in our lived experiences. Now, what was it like to be a part of something that was so timely, so relevant right now, uh, that means something in the cultural moment? What was that experience like? Um, well, I mean, it, it was it was great. And I think it had the weight that it has because Vina, although she isn't black, she is a woman of color. So I think that she um, has um, more empathy when it comes to the relationship between police and the black community than say maybe a white writer. Um, Not saying that a white writer is not able to have that empathy, but I think she can, um, she, she may have a little more naturally because just her existence in America is more similar because she's, she's experienced Things just because of the color of her skin, the or the tightness of her eyes, or the sh- curls in her hair um, that uh, black people have. So she's first writing from that place of familiarity, and then um, being a mother, understanding the level of pain that parents who have lost children in these situations could possibly feel while we, she, myself, and all of the parents involved with that project hope to never have to, you know, know that from an experiential place, we can relate to the potential devastation that can happen if you lose a child when you, once you become a parent. You just look at things through a different lens once you become a parent. And how has your own motherhood or, or parenthood informed the way that you portrayed that character, the mother of the victim, in the, in seven seconds? Well, I think it first started just my life. You know, I, there there are things that have uh, that I've witnessed, that I've experienced, um, anger that I've had all of my life that has kind of brought me or have have prepared me for this role, while Sure. It wasn't like, you know, when you're preparing to be, you know, win the championship. It's not preparation like that. It's just kind of life experiences that whether you look at it as fortunate or unfortunate, I think in in this particular case, it's 
fortunate because I'm able to pull from that and unfortunate that that's something that I've always known. I've never known police and black uh, community uh, relations to be anything other than difficult. So that was served as prep. And then I was able to speak very closely to a mother who had lost her son to um, police uh, shooting. And she was very open with me and vulnerable with me and shared her dark, the dark places that she had been and how she got out of them and how sometimes, you know, she can slowly feel like she's drifting back towards uh, this, the anger. It comes back up for her um, and, and what she's done to heal. So um, having those conversations with her was very helpful as well. Now, in, in doing in doing seven seconds, was there anything about policing that you that you didn't know that you learned as a part of the process you know i don't want to give away the the end of the series but we always call for justice and our accountability and there's something about the way the system sort of bears out so did you learn a lot in the process of this film about sort of the structures no not really (laughs) not really i mean you know i will say it's interesting because when i I'd spent five years on the show Southland. And, you know, if you ask me this same question while having that experience, I definitely learned things. Uh, I think I went into that carrying a lot of um, ill will and bad energy towards cops and then having to work with so many officers and train with so many officers um, I think what I learned and realized that earlier on, I guess it was just probably being naive or having had so many negative experiences or witnessing so many negative negative experiences between um, black people and the LAPD that I was lumping everyone into an experience which it was a nice, it was a learning lesson and a, and a maturing lesson because I could always say, and I've witnessed myself always saying, just because I'm black, you shouldn't assume I'm this or that, you know. And as a human being, I can't make a statement like that or try to argue a statement like that and not realize that that is the same for everyone, you know, uh, I've met some wonderful police officers that were disgusted with the behavior of their fellow officers, but I would have never even taken the time to get to know any of those people if I wasn't doing that show. So Southland was your like. It was my uh, yeah, yeah. It was it was my aha moment or yeah. I can't say I can't just put everybody in that same category just because I've had a bad teacher in life. That that doesn't mean all my teachers from kindergarten through college were bad people. But when you've seen mostly um, negative things between family members, friends, people that you don't know, that you just hear about, and law enforcement, you you begin to have a picture in your head that they're all bad. 
If I don't want someone to just say, you know, this, if I don't want people to say all black people are criminals, assume I'm a criminal just because I'm black, I can't say all police officers hate black people, even though it seemed that way <laughs> to me. And we would say, too, is that it's not even about people. It's about, like, and I think the show actually does a really good job of showing the institution that's broken. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's a question about, like, justice for your baby, right? That, right. like, is... Yeah. Seems to be missing. I think that that's the beauty of the way Vina chose to tell this story. I think if it would have just been a police shooting, I don't think we would have been able to explore the the legal system and, and, and how we're regarded or the experiences that we have that are different. It's The conversation usually is about how the community and the police treat each other or don't regard each other um, with respect. That's always the conversation. But the legal system and how how we fall in between the cracks, we black people in the legal system, our lives are not, we're treated like dogs. California has a, you live in California. Yeah. California has a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the findings. You know what I'm saying? That's crazy. And and what's so crazy about that is I didn't even know that. But that's not surprising. And it goes deeper than that. And I think it, deeper than that, I know in my city, I remember the very first time I realized that the regard for black people was so low, not just within law enforcement and with the legal uh, system, was when this girl, I think her name was Latasha Harlins, if I'm not mistaken, and I had to be probably about 15, 16 years old, and it was on video. Um, She came into a liquor store to buy like a juice or something like that, and it was an Asian woman that owned the store and that was behind the um, counter. And you can't hear the audio, but obviously they had some type of, heated discussion and the Latasha threw the juice and turned around and walked out and the Asian woman picked up a gun and shot her in the back three times and killed her and that woman all she got was probation and that was like you remember that like I would still get chills right now whenever I bring it up and just that and that anger comes back up and that was probably the beginning of Generation X, my generation in L.A. and feeling like, yeah, we have to be defiant. We have to, you know, put our fingers up. And that's when you started really seeing more people getting beat down, you know. You know, that's hard to see. You know, like, where where do you... how am I supposed to feel safe? Was was th- was this as emotionally taxing? It was like you you know you. I felt like you were like my aunt on TV, and I'm like <laughs> I'm tired for my aunt. I'm like all these tears. I'm like I'm tired too. <laughs> um, was it? Is this like? I mean, you do this is like a career for you, so this is you know you've done many things, but yeah, no, it was okay. emotionally taxing. Okay. I mean, like. It w- I'd find ways to joke with my castmates. I'd be like, oh my god. <laughs> Jesus, if I got one more, if I say one more time, my son was dead in the ditch. Right. Yeah. I feel like they pan on that ditch. Oh my God, they killed the boy. 
Oh, gosh, yeah. It got to the point where I felt like I was counting how many times okay. I said that. Okay, But um, I think it was also just my way of trying to find a light way to get through the day because it was a heavy space to be for six months. It really, really was. I always wanted to know, how do you... You know, you you were 227, weren't you? I was. I, I had the Brenda with the big hair. I, I had will the, never forget yeah, 227. Yeah. My grandmother used to watch 227. We used to like sneak in her room and watch 227. <laughs> but I say that because you have you you've been so many people that we like remember mm-hmm. that like how do you do they stay with you? Do they like well, what is that like? Like is Huey like is Huey? Do you still carry pieces of Huey around? Or like are there still pieces of like I don't know how does that? You I'm seem sh- like such big parts of your life right i i would have to say yes i don't know that i'm consciously thinking about a character or oh that was a little bit of you know latrice or a little bit of lydia i don't know that i really think like that but as an actor um i feel like what we do when you feel like an actor is given a performance that you feel is so believable i think a big part of that is as an actor, you get the material, and as you're diving in, you're trying to find a space where I can find Regina in Latrice, so that mm. even mm. though that's not Regina, I'm finding truth in the performance. Got it. So all of them have a little bit of Regina, even if it's the little boys. All of them have a little bit. You know, I just think about, I don't know why I'm on like a boondocks kick, but I just think about even seven, seven, seven seconds, it's like those monologues just seem like so intense to remember, so intense to deliver it, that like it feels like you just won't forget, like that you'll carry them with you, you know? Yeah, I mean, again, like we were talking, there's, there's a really, um, there's a personal space with Latrice that because of just my experience being black in America. But... Um, I remember, because of that, I remember there was this one scene, and I don't know if it made the final cut, um, and it's because I can't go back and watch the show. Uh, It's just too emotional, and I hate watching myself. Um, But we were doing the scene, and we did one take, and Vina was there, and I said, Vina, you know, I feel like when I... Because I'm going off a little bit lightweight at the... um, the defense attorney, and I said, I, I feel like I should say, you know, is Brenton just another hashtag to you? Because at this point in our zeitgeist, it's too many hashtags to remember. And this woman doesn't want her son to just be a hashtag. She wants um, his memory to be... Like, if we do talk about Brenton and we talk about this cop, the, the, her best um, best place she can land is that he was convicted because of murdering Brenton Butler. And obviously, you know, that's not what happened. But I, I felt like in that moment, if I'm me, Regina King, is representing the pain of all of these parents that have actually experienced this. Sure, we're telling a story, but this, these are real-life people that we're representing. Um, I feel like that that might be what they would think. That might be, as, as these parents are going through whatever trial, whatever. And that was going, your ad-lib. Yeah, that was my ad-lib. 
Yeah, all that to say that was my <laughs> that, that was my uh, five cents on it. No, that was yeah. just seven seconds. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, as a black woman in the industry who has been in it in a lot of cool roles for a long time, how have you, if at all, seen it change? Is it changing? Mm. Is it not changing? Is it just a moment? Mm. Is this like a, and not just a moment in a pejorative way, but I don't know, like how have you? Yeah, I, it's changing slowly, but surely, but slowly. Are the scripts changing? Are the is power changing? Is money like what's the? I'm I just think, trying to figure think, out what the change. Yeah, is. and I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> give it to you. Um, I feel like, um, for example, while the role of Olivia Pope is not a real person, and it is a little um, like larger than life. larger than life, fantasized a bit. We just never had that. We've never had that woman. You know, and the fact that we that normally and that woman would have been written for a white actor, you know, and so just that alone is an example. And the success of that um, is is a step. Um, Issa Rae is a huge example of moving forward Um in here's a, a young woman who's smart and use the um, internet with the web series to to become this web phenomenon, and then here we have Insecure, one of the one of everyone's favorite show, not every black person's favorite show. Are we going to see you in the season? Are you like popping up? No, but I did direct the finale this you did? season. Yes, you yes. direct too. Yes. Do I not know that? Is that like a secret? I, I no, it's not a secret. What it's else not, have you directed that I? Um, you have to check the resume, but quite check. a bit. Scandal. This is us. Oh, the Good Doctor. I spent shameless. so much time on like your acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Um, one of the questions that we ask everybody. But I want to say oh, this. Go ahead, go ahead. And because it's interesting because, you know, we follow each other and I'm so grateful for you and your voice and the work that you do. And, you know, I try to do my part with taking roles like choosing roles like Seven Seconds and American Crime. I feel like that's my way that I'm using my platform to shed light on things. I'm not as... I am not able to be as articulate as you when I'm very upset about something. I, my my passion and my anger takes over my words, and I don't. The message is lost. So we need the me's and we need the you's. But sometimes on social media, there's so much noise that we miss so many things. So that's why. You may not know other things that are happening with me. I may not know other things that are happening with you because there's so much that sometimes you're going through a feed and you just got to unplug or either unplug for a few days, few weeks. For me, it usually comes at months at a time. But um, that that's, I think, a big reason why we we... We, it's so hard to keep up because we cannot keep up with this news cycle. What was what turned into the twenty four hour news cycle like is like the two minute news second. cycle. Yeah, you're like, did that yeah, just did that just like, happen? Are we at, are we at war with North Korea today? You're like, right, yeah, and it's like it's so hard to be excited about something great that happened without feeling like, but, but I can't be because because I can't take light off of all of these other things that we have to keep the conversation out there and, and force people to talk about. 
Seven. Last few questions I know you have to run is one is um what is your advice to to all the, the people who look up to you and are like she did it she helped us see that like we could do that too and that this is really cool what's your advice to like the budding artist um discipline you know um forcing yourself to do the things that you even want to do. You know, sometimes, you know, you know that, you know, I know I want to sing. I know I've got a great voice. But you allow yourself to be distracted easily or don't um, do what you need to do to um, improve that falsetto or whatever it is so that when the opportunity comes, you're ready for it. And I think... um, we uh younger people especially are so often looking for the shortcut and true success those people that really can tell you what it feels like to really be successful they didn't take any shortcuts so i would say don't go for the easy way don't go for the easy way and one of the questions we ask everybody is what is a piece of advice that you've gotten that stuck with you Mm, there's so many. Oh, gosh. Um, I guess um, don't lie, because if you start a lie, you got to finish the lie. Mm. If you don't finish it, it's going to come catch your ass for don't start sure. A lie, you got to finish it. <laughs> yeah. That's something like your mama said. But don't that, start it's a come, lie, it came from my mama. <laughs> don't start a lie, because you got to finish a lie. Yeah, you know, you know moms know. can tell. You know, just when you start to lie, my mom would be like, oh, oh, oh. And then I'd be like, yeah. That's oh, great. Okay. Well, we'll see what really happened, you know. Cool. Well, we appreciate you coming. We consider you a friend of the pod. I am so and, excited uh, to finally like yeah, lay yeah, eyes on you. It's like a real thing. I'm like, yeah, I love it. He's I love real. It. Um, this is really the last thing. He's gonna kill me. Is is there a is there a scene that you'll never forget? Like you've done so much, you right. know, I'm like so fascinated. Yeah. Um when you asked me that two scenes came to mind. Um, One was with Carrie Coon and The Leftovers. She and I had an eight-page scene, just she and I, and it felt like we were doing stage play. It was amazing. Like, when we finished, we both, like, when we got in the van, we both knocked out. We went to sleep. And now she's a mom. Um, And then the other that came to mind was a scene with Will Smith in um, Enemy of the State where um, when I when he comes home and I think that he's having an affair again with uh, Lisa Bonet's character. And it was such an emotional scene. And um, Will likens it to a tennis match that we were just going back and forth, back and forth. But that was another one that it just felt in the moment like you knew yeah it was art yeah and 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 i've got another one with jamie and ray that that i feel the same way it It was the one when um the first time um she i was gonna call her marcy what was my name margie (laughs) (laughs) um tries drugs okay with him and and i think also I, i remember that one so much because jamie during filming that scene was so caring because I'm in my bra and panties in that scene. And every time we would do a take, he would stand in front of me to kind of like cover me or pull the shower. And I was like, look at Jamie looking out for me. I love it. That's cool. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Boom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pod Save the People. 
Now, my book comes out on September 4th. Please pre-order at DeRay.com. Remember that a portion of the proceeds up to 20000 is actually going to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. You know, in writing, it was a lot of reflecting on the lessons that I've learned over the past decade or so and thinking about, like, how they speak to me in this current moment and how they speak to all the things that we're going through together as a set of people, like, interested in a better future. So I reflect a lot on what I've seen and what I've lived through and also offer a set of ideas about like how we actually get to the other side of freedom and what that looks like. Also, you can join me on the tour and there'll be special guests with me throughout the tour. It starts in New York City on September the 5th and I'll be in a host of cities around the country. But during the tour stops, we'll have conversations about like what does activism look like in your life? Uh, what does it mean to think about things like our relationship with uh, with God or religion and how that impacts the way we think about the work? What does it mean to think about our own identity and the complexity of identity? So uh, please join us on the tour. You can get tickets to the tour at DeRay.com as well. And you can pre-order the book. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next week. <laughs>